0: This morning we continue our study through the Gospel of Luke and we explore different lessons from the life of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus. And this morning our scripture comes to us from Luke chapter 4, the first 21 verses. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan River and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end of them he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place, showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me, I can give it to whomever I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, It is written, When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. When Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, the news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues. Everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he said to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to enjoy this text this morning. We're going to explore it a little bit. I want us to consider a few things. The first is the test. Secondly, the call. Lastly, the power. Let's begin with the test. Jesus is led by the Spirit to be tested, and he's led out into the wilderness for this testing. And the test is the same test that we find in the beginning of our Bibles. And the test is answering the question is God good? Is he good, or is life apart from God good? And if we trust in God, will we be fulfilled, or is God some sort of cosmic restrictor, intent on making our lives difficult, that we would somehow have more joy if we were to be our own gods? Maybe it would be a more fulfilling life if we diversified our trust portfolio and didn't really worship him as king. So the devil here, uh, in the, the term for the devil in Greek is diabolos, and the term devil has been ruined by art and modern, because there's like horns and pitchforks involved, but the original term, it's a verb, it means slanderer. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew is the Satan, it's the accuser, the slanderer. This kind of a person that they already had in the culture was uh, was divisive. This is the term that's used to describe a slanderer par excellence. They slander like it's their job. This is a person who is known for dividing and severing relationships. Through their slander, through their lies, through their conniving, they are intentionally severing relationships. They use unjust accusations to do this. And so this is the diabolus. And so the reason I mention that, in particular for those of you exploring Christian faith today, to not get distracted by this term devil and just imagine, you know, maniacal laughing and the wringing of hands, that there's something strategic that's happening here in the temptation of Jesus, because if the Son of God can be separated from the Father God, then that means that you and I have no way to God. This is all about creating disunity in the Trinity. This is going back to the original test in the garden of rejecting the idea that God is good, finding fulfillment apart from him, and of course that ending in travesty. So this whole testing uh, is a shakedown, but there's two different ways to test things. The Diabolos tests things with the explicit intention of breaking them. God tests Jesus. The Spirit led him into the test. God tests us, but it's a very different kind of a testing. It's not test with the intention of destroying, it's testing with the intention of revealing. Jesus is not like us. We have weak points that can be revealed in our testing. When we are tested, we are drawn, our eyes are drawn attention to our weaknesses, whereby we can turn to God and trust in Him and strengthen. Jesus has no weaknesses, He is God. So there's something in the testing of Jesus that is about revealing. But also Jesus is human and so therefore he can identify with the weakness, he can identify with the temptation and yet do this without sin. He's presented here as the second Adam. He's going to succeed where Adam failed and this is all significant because there's no coincidence this is all happening in the wilderness because throughout the entire Old Testament, there was constant testing in the wilderness. And the children of God, the people of God, did the same thing over and over, cyclically. They diversified their trust portfolio. They turned to other gods. They worshipped other things. Because as humans, the worship switch was turned on at birth, to borrow a term from Jared Wilson. And that switch has cannot be shut off. It's been on since birth, and we just are... As humans, seeking to worship, looking for things to exalt and disorbit our lives around. So Jesus is suffering in the wilderness because what lies ahead of him is the suffering at the cross. All of these temptations are, get out of the suffering. Live a life without suffering. Do not trust the Father who has led you into this suffering. He must be a terrible Father. He must be a terrible God. Surely you cannot be fulfilled in life by trusting this God relocate your ultimate trust. And so the first temptation comes with turning the rock into bread. And it seems trivial because it is trivial. It's not just about turning a rock into muffin. It's just a trivial use of power. Jesus Christ is God. He is the one through whom the universe was spun into existence. God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are present in creation. And it was from their love and their sense of fulfillment, not neediness, that they spun the cosmos and all that exists into existence. The universe was spun forward from love. God's desire for relationship with humanity is from love, for love. God from the beginning giving everything that is God to everything that is not God. Because he's generous, not because he's needy. And so the temptation here is use your power in a trivial way for self-gratification. You're hungry, you're starving, it's been 40 days. Just use your power for yourself. How has power always been used by those in power for themselves? How have kingdoms been expanded throughout all of world history and still today? Using power for the self. The misuse of power. My benefit at your expense. What is being presented here by saying, oh yeah, just turn the rock into some focaccia. Let's just change the whole vibe here. You're hungry, it can end, we can end it right now. Use your power for yourself. And what we are confronted with here is a king who stoops, a king, a suffering savior, one who is not going to use indulge in this petty use of his power. And so he answers and he says, Man shall not live by bread alone. Mankind shall not live by feeding their own appetites. Where does this sound familiar? Take, eat in the garden. Here again, take, eat in the wilderness. And in a a glorious juxtaposition of how we got into the problem in the first place, at the end of every service, we come to the Lord's table and we take and we eat. The very actions that got us into the problems in the first place, by trying to fill ourselves with ourselves, God has redeemed, and we eat and we drink at the Lord's table to be reminded that the soul truly flourishes, and we are filled and strengthened as we take and eat of our very God in the relationship with him. So Jesus answers this temptation and says, man will not live by feeding their own appetites. And then the second temptation rolls out, where he's tempted to bow down and worship. And it seems ridiculous. It's kind of an audacious thing. Hey, why don't you worship me? You're the creator of all things. It seems crazy. But of course, this is a temptation to end his suffering. He's suffering, and he knows that there's suffering coming. And I don't think that what's going on here is rock climbing, where a a starving Jesus after 40 days of fasting is, you know, scaling a cliff and looking down on the kingdoms of the world. I think that this is a very accessible suffering that is happening, because you and I have Had suffering and sorrow and sadness and depression. We've had attacks in the mind and the body and the soul. We've all had moments in our lives where we feel like we're having out of body experiences because the sadness is so thick. And so Jesus is being taken to see all the kingdoms of the world. I don't know that he's literally climbing, scaling a cliff, but that this is a a spiritual attack, a psychological attack, an emotional attack, a physiological attack as he's suffering in the wilderness. And the devil is saying, you can end all of this. You can end the pain. Just stop. End the pain easily. Stop trusting this God. Stop trusting this Father. He's not a very good Father. Turn to me, worship me. If he can separate the Son of God from Father God, you and I have no way to God. If he can get Jesus to see the Father differently, he can get him to trust Differently. You can get him to worship differently. This has always been humanity's problem. This is the play that the Abalas has been running since Genesis. This was the problem in the garden. If I can get you to see God differently, did God really say that? Did God say? If I can get you to see God differently, I can get you to trust differently. I can get you to orbit your life around something else aka worship, differently. It's the same play. It's been running it from the beginning. And Jesus' answer is, you shall not worship the Lord your God, or, or sorry, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone do you serve. And when Jesus says that, he's actually quoting Deuteronomy 6. God said to his people when he was bringing them into the promised land, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. And God says that because they're about to enter into a life of comfort, And the temptation is going to be, worship the comfort. Celebrate the comfort, orbit your life around the comfort. So Deuteronomy 6, God explicitly says to his children, Worship the Lord your God, him alone shall you serve. Do not worship the life of comfort. What is being offered here? The end of suffering and into the life of comfort. So Jesus responds, no. Because on the surface, it seems ridiculous. If you're envisioning horns and pitchforks and tails, bow down and worship me is ridiculous. But that's not what's going on here. This isn't like a cartoon temptation. This is how do I end the sorrow? How many people do we know in our lives who are like, how do I end the sorrow? And they, from pain, choose a trajectory that's ultimately destructive. This has always been humanity's problem orient your soul around the wrong thing. If I can get you to see differently, you'll trust differently, you'll worship differently. If after the service today I was to go downtown with a professional photographer and we were both to stand in the city street and snap a picture, the picture I take would probably be f- entirely forgettable. But the picture that the artist takes, it could be a masterpiece. We're looking at the same thing, aren't we? Or are we? But there's a philosophy in art, and the philosophy is this. It's not what you're looking at, it's how you see it. And that's why you and I don't take photos like professional photographers, because we're looking at the same thing, but we're not seeing it in the same way. This is at the core of the temptation. How can I get you to see God like an ogre? How can I get you to think about him like your life will not be good if you trust him and worship him and turn to him? Something's going to be missing. So why don't you go somewhere else and find some small impotent thing to satisfy the cravings of your soul? It all ends in tears. So this leads to, of course, the third temptation, which is this attack on his identity, this attack on his security, this attack on Christ's, on Jesus' sense of self. And, And the attack is, prove yourself, like prove who you are. For 30 years, Jesus has lived under the humiliation of being human. The limitations of being human. He is the voice that spun the cosmos into existence, and then he cried in a filthy manger. He was born into poverty, incredible poverty. You know that because the because the the sacrifice that Mary and Joseph bring to the temple was the sacrifice that was allotted for poor people, right? It wasn't like we think about it like moderns. Ten percent of your income. So you grab your T four. What's ten percent? And then. Blah. You read the old testament the Levitical laws around tithing, and there was like tiers based on people's economic structure, and the very poor could like bring these little turtle doves, and that's what Jerry and, uh, sorry, uh, Mary and Joseph. Jerry. Mary and Joseph bring. I talked too fast. I'm gonna just take some water here. We're renaming Jesus' parents, the servant is not going. good. <laughs> So there's an attack for 30 years, humiliating. Probably heard whispers for most of his life. Being called a bastard, being called other things, living with the stigma. He knows that the very people that he came to save are rejecting him. There's a lot of emotion around this. So the temptation is go to the top of the temple, the place where people meet God. Oh, you're God? Just prove that you're God. Let everybody know that you're God. End the suffering. End the suffering of identity. End the whispering behind your back. Just end it all. Go to the top of the temple. This is where people meet God, right? Shut the mouths of the skeptics. Jump off. You're going to be okay. I'm going to quote Psalm 91. The Diabolus does. Land on one knee. Eyes like fire. Face like flint. Fist into the pavement. The ultimate superhero landing. Everyone's like, whoa. He is God. Pretty tempting. Do it. Just end. End all of the suffering, Jesus. You don't have to go through this suffering. Prove that God's good. Prove that He loves you. Prove it. Attack at the core of identity. And the devil takes Psalm 91 out of context. He quotes Psalm 91. Hey, the Bible says. God won't let anything bad happen to you. It's right here in Psalm 91. Read it. There it is. God won't let anything bad happen to you. Hey, is there anything bad happening to you? Hmm. Why don't you throw this uh, faith in having this God away? Because it seems to me that his word says right there, he will not let your foot dash against a stone. Seems to me like you're stowing your toe every couple of days. So, how about we stop worshiping him? Why don't we stop playing these games, okay? These religious games. Your life isn't good. There's suffering in the world. Have you looked out your window lately? No. This is the temptation. He, quote, he, he takes some 91 out of context. Have you ever had anything taken out of context and used against you? It is infuriating. Have you ever had somebody quote back to you something that you said and spin it in a way where it's like, now you're somehow having to defend yourself? Infuriating. You don't think Jesus wasn't infuriated? I think he was infuriated. I, I could tell by his answer he was infuriated, and I'll show you in a second. And um, this is not good. Verse 12, Jesus says, "Do not put God to the test." How do you think he said that? I don't mean the tone in this voice. I mean, what, like, how do, what do you think He, he is God? Do not test me. You want me to prove that I'm God right now? Do not test me. He's on a mission to redeem a humanity that doesn't deserve it. He's going to offer grace that we don't deserve in a scandalous contradiction to what you and I should be getting. He is going to go and suffer and die so that we can be reunited with our creator and have souls that truly flourish even while all hell is breaking loose. And now he's being tempted to just forsake this whole redemptive plan. He says, do not tempt me. And it's like the C.S. Lewis quote, do not cite the dark magic to me, which I was there when it was written. That's what's going on here. It's profound and amazing. The devil quotes Psalm 91 in the wrong way because he suggests that God will not let anything bad happen to you. So if you interpret the Bible like the devil, I just got to let you know, as a budding theologian, that's a bad way to interpret the Bible. We shouldn't arrive at the same conclusions as Satan when we read the scriptures. Are we all on the same page here? Can we agree on this? I know these are divisive times. But are you with me? So the, the interpretation of Psalm 91 is not God will not let anything bad happen to you. The proper interpretation of Psalm 91, spoiler alert, the end of Psalm 91, is in the end there is nothing final about any of the bad things that happen to you. Nothing Nothing final. Your life is not ruined, because united to Christ, he's going to renew this earth, he's going to renew our bodies to enjoy it, and there's going to be glorious redemption. In the words of C.S. Lewis, there will be a glorious reversal where every sad thing becomes untrue. To borrow from J.R.L. Tolkien, there will be a catastrophe as he begins to work all things in reverse. There will be the end of all tears. The promise of the Father united to the Son and indwelled by the Holy Spirit is this. He will forge in you peace and poise in suffering so that when all hell is breaking loose, you do not clamor for rest in small, volatile things. Small, volatile things to search for assurance in our own small resources. We will increasingly rest in God's inexhaustible resources. We will turn to Him in that way. Have you ever had an experience where you're with friends or family, there's laughter, there's enjoyment, there's joy, and you wish the moment would last for forever? Have you ever had this exhilarating moment with somebody, celebrating a success of some kind or an accomplishment of some kind, and you wish that that moment of euphoria, you just wish it would last for forever? Have you ever tried to drink in a sunset? Have you ever tried to drink in a moment? Have you ever looked at something and said, This is so good, I'm trying to burn it into my mind, I never want to forget this moment? We, we've all had that happen because we're realists and we know that good things don't last for forever. And so it's like in those moments, we're like, How can I just burn this into, my, into the synaptic connections of my brain somehow? How can I create a neurological pathway so that I can access this feeling? How can I do it? We, we, we desire this permanence of joy and satisfaction. And the proper interpretation of Psalm 91 is that in the end, there is nothing final about the terrible things that are happening, but there will be renewal, we will be raised to enjoy it. The gospel changes everything. So Jesus does not give in to these temptations, does not give in to the testing, the gospel changes everything. I'll, I'll give you a, a modern day parable. It's a little silly and hyperbolic, but I think we have good precedent for that because there's some great stories Jesus told, and if you break those parables down, you're like, "This is a pretty good use of humor right here." We don't laugh at it as moderns, but Jesus used to start stories like, "Once there was a man, and he had more money than the entire Roman Empire." Like that's comedic gold right there. We don't think it's that funny, but they were they were dying when he said that. That kind of money credit didn't exist back then. You understand? Hilarious. Okay. The gospel changes everything. It changes our attitude towards suffering. When I coached football, there was a little guy that played with Isaiah, and his name was Ben. And I've talked about Ben before. I've told a couple stories about Ben. And uh, Ben did not really like football that much, even though we called him Big Ben because he was like the biggest kid on the team. I mean, Come on, Big Ben. You're going to be okay. And he did not like it. And he did not like getting hit. And there was a lot of crying. Uh, I know that like, if, there, if I was going to make a little a movie about... Not like Little League Baseball. but there's no crying in baseball. If I was to make a movie about that, I'd be like, there is a lot of crying in football. There is so much crying in Little League football, i got to tell you. And Ben did a lot of crying. And one day, he comes up running up to me before the game starts. And he used to come up to me during the game multiple times. And he would tug on me. And he'd be like, coach, coach. And I'd be like, yeah. And he'd be like, how much time is left? And I'd be like, oh, mama. But... He comes up to me and he goes, Hey coach, coach, my dad says if I play every game, I get an Xbox! He was a changed child. He might play in the NFL right now, I don't know. He would, it changed him. One promise. The Xbox. I mean it just, blessed assurance, the Xbox is mine. Oh, what a Fortnite! <laughs> glory divine. This kid was just changed. A different player. He was still getting hit in the mouth every 24 seconds. But somehow it didn't hurt as badly. None of the circumstances had changed but he was a different kid. I know that's a trivial example. And some of you are like, did he just compare the gospel to an Xbox? Try not to meditate on that too much. But the point is, we are transformed in our suffering. We are changed as we trust and rest in God. And the final two things you might say, are we going to be in for a three-hour sermon? That was point number one. And this brother better be landing the plane because we put a roast in the oven. Well, I'm sorry, Presbyterians. You need to visit more charismatic churches. Um, No, I'm just kidding. The last two things I want to mention quickly because they weave into what we've been talking about this morning. Secondly, the call. You see, Jesus is anointed and he demonstrates how God is good. And he declares the good news that God is good. Properly, Christ is not Jesus' last name. Hi, I'm Jesus Christ. This is my brother James Christ. It it means anointed. It means Messiah. It means the christened one. He is the christened, the anointed, the powerful one. So he quotes from Isaiah... After all of this temptation, says he goes out in power. And he quotes from Isaiah, and he doesn't even blink. He goes into the temple. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, set the oppressed free, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. No room for ambiguity. He's the fulfillment of every prophetic word. He's God's final word. He's the Messiah. Everybody's eyes are on him. I guess so. Just scroll drop. <laughs> he sits down. Everybody's eyes are on him. Have you ever had everybody's eyes on you? Like judging eyes on you? Have you ever had one pair of judging eyes on you? Very uncomfortable. All the eyes are judging him. He's so comfortable. He's the most comfortable. All the eyes are bearing down on him. He says, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing power the call the niv the new international version says today the scripture is here you know fulfilled in your hearing the new instagram translation would be i'm that guy and then the pharisees spend the next three years saying you're not that guy and jesus spends the next three years being like i'm him i'll show you watch and for three years healings and miracles and constantly bringing the kingdom of God to bear just a convergence of this age which is full of decay and sorrow and sadness and the age to come ergo all the miracles and the reversal of the decay in the natural order as Jesus is saying this is where everything's headed are you paying attention this incredible call the messianic call which leads to the final thing the power Jesus full of power he overcomes the temptation He brings us this freedom. United to Christ, we are now empowered to overcome the temptations in our lives to live in freedom. And we fail at it all the time. We come to the Lord's table as repentant sinners because we can't trust perfectly. We can't obey perfectly. And yet, because we are united to him, we are called to this life gradually, slowly, increasingly, inevitably. It's inevitable. This is what being indwelled by the Spirit does. Yes, we sin and we fall on our faces. And yet there's this desire in us to live in freedom. True soul freedom, which is not autonomy. Freedom has never been about autonomy. Freedom is always about uh, flourishing under the wise guidance of God's ways. You remember that this all happens after Jesus' baptism at the Jordan, the great exodus, for. Foreshadowing our exodus and the ultimate exodus. And after the exodus, and after salvation by grace, Exodus chapter 20, God says, I am a God who saved you out of slavery in Egypt. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And here come the Ten Commandments. Because true freedom is flourishing under the wise guidance of God's ways. And the same is true for us. And if you fast forward into Galatians 5, the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul is talking all about freedom, he's using terms like, Walk in the Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. This lifelong desire to come into congruence with the goodness of God, the wisdom of God, the nature of God, the ways of God. I'll close with this. A quote from Thomas Chalmers from the late 1700s, a great theologian. He said, It's seldom that any of our tastes are made to disappear by mere process of natural extinction. The heart must have something to cling to, and never... By its own voluntary consent, will it so denude itself of all of its attachments? Therefore, the superior affection for God through the free gospel of Jesus Christ is necessary to displace worldly affections. This is the expulsive power of a new affection. We praise God that Jesus overcame every test, that he fulfilled his call in power that he then goes out and does the work of his redemption in power and may we now united to him by the indwelling power of the spirit may we increasingly forsake the temptation to live as though we can flourish apart from him may we increasingly embrace our call which is to live to the glory of the one who saved us in grace to be imitators of him and to live in that power In humility, souls flourishing, giving a defense for the hope that we enjoy in him. Let's pray.